Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all of our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. Today, our podcast will feature our The Good Book Club meeting to discuss The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body, and the Healing of Trauma by Bessel A. Vanderkolk. Dr. Vanderkolk is a leading expert on trauma, and in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, he uses recent scientific advances to show how trauma literally reshapes our body and brain, which can often keep us from experiencing pleasure, engagement, self-control, and trust. The book explores innovative treatments from neurofeedback and meditation to sports, drama, and yoga that offer new paths to recovery by activating the brain's natural healing powers. We learned so much from this book, and our discussion was at times difficult, but also healing and wonderful. We're sure that you will find something that resonates with you in this discussion, too. This book club meeting was originally held on February 12, 2023. Welcome, everybody, to the Good Book Club. It is February 12th. It is Super Bowl Sunday. And so we're so excited that you guys have made the effort to be here. <laughs> we're just glad Book Club doesn't actually conflict with the Super Bowl. Then I feel like we wouldn't have the turnout. But we are very excited to have everybody here today. So we always start out by reading our book club mission statement, just so we can remind ourselves what our purpose is and what we're hoping to accomplish. And I think Bruce today is going to read that statement for us. Okay. The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are, we are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experiences relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. Oh, perfect, Bruce. I love to hear that read every time. That was awesome. Thank you. Okay, we're going to do a little recap on some things our book club members have been doing very quickly. Um, a few of us, a group of us, went up to the Bear River Massacre site in January. Yeah, it was in January. It was a couple of weeks ago. That's right. I had to think for a minute. Anyway, uh, it was an anniversary. It was a memorial. The amazing Darren Perry right there in the middle in the cute little pink beanie. He forgot to bring his own beanie and he's wearing his toddler granddaughter's pink beanie. Um, he uh, gave a wonderful presentation. Um, this is a very... It's a very tragic, a very interesting story. There is a book associated with it. If you guys have not read this, it's called The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History by Darren Perry. So um, if you want some extra reading, grab that and read about it. It's a quick, quick read, but it was a very moving ceremony and absolutely freezing, as you can tell from how we're dressed and the look on our face, which is like, get me to California. <laughs> All right, perfect. Thank you for that slide. Okay, we'll go through a few little upcoming events before we get to our main book club meeting. Um, I helped John DeLynn run the Mormon Stories Book Club, and we are reading When the Moon Turns to Blood. Um, it is a discussion about religious extremism. Um, and it, it kind of details things in the Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell case. So this meeting is going to be a virtual live stream, a Mormon stories podcast. It's going to be on March 3rd at 10 AM. So if you guys would like to um, jump on with me and John DeLynn and the author, 
we're going to be talking about this um, at the beginning of March. So extra reading. Also, Bad Mormon, you probably have seen this in the press. Um, this already dropped as far as John DeLynn doing the Mormon stories with her. This was last week. Really interesting episode. And um, from what I'm hearing, really interesting book. So also extra reading if you guys want to pick that up. Um, another event that we have for those that are here in Utah, we have, we've been talking about this for so long, but it's actually happening. We have our movie screening of the return of Elder Pingree. Um, uh, he's a post-Mormon who returns to the mission field and kind of documents um, experiences there as he deconstructs. He's an Emmy award-winning filmmaker. He flew in last two nights ago. Some of us got to go have dinner with him. He's just amazing. And this is a free event at Bruvie's Cinema Pub on Monday at 6 p.m. If you aren't here and you can't make it, this is available to rent on Amazon for only $2.99. I highly recommend everybody jump on Amazon and watch this. Um, it's hard for me to describe what this film is. Um, I can't quite find the right words. Um, most people who watch it are so touched, they end up in tears. It's just a beautiful, wonderful film that I feel, I mean, obviously post-Mormons will resonate. It will resonate with them a lot, but also, you know, anybody in the Mormon faith who served a mission, I think there's a lot there to be gained for it. So anyway, that's my last plug for this because the events tomorrow, finally, another bonus event that now we can focus on. This is coming up on the 28th. This is the amazing Dr. Randall Bell, PhD. I like how you put that in there, Melissa. He has written a book, new book, Post-Traumatic Thriving that just came out a few weeks ago, and he has graciously agreed to come and talk to us. This is a bonus event. It's going to be on Tuesday. It's 7 p.m. We'll have the link out to everybody. You don't have to have read the book to come and take part in the discussion, but if you'd like to, you can grab it. Um, I think it's a fairly quick read. There's a lot of graphs and pictures in it, but anyway, he's awesome. You really want to come and interact with him and he'll answer questions and talk to us. So um, we're going to be promoting this heavily. So, all right. Our next book for next month is going to be Enlightenment Now. And Kevin, is going to be our discussion leader. We are going to talk about this. Kevin's going to give a little preview for us at the end of our book club meeting. And this is going to be on March 12th um, at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. So we'll talk about this later, but we're really excited that we finally got into this one. Awesome. All right. What else? Oh, let's quickly go through any other media on the radar. In addition to books, there's some other things you can be participating in the Good Book Club. And we have the Good Media Club where we kind of curate things that are out there in the media, podcasts, films, series, um, theater, things that have to do with Mormonism, post-Mormonism. And I put those all on a Facebook page. So you can join that. Just look that up. We also have the Good Book Club podcast um, where we take these meetings and put them in podcast format. So you can listen to them while you're working out. <laughs> we also have Landon and I do the Mormonish podcast, which is fun. We talk to actually a lot of you guys. <laughs> None of you are safe. We'd like to have you on as guests. So that drops every Friday and there's a Facebook page and you can find it at mormonishpodcast.org um, too. And I think that finally brings us to why you are all here. The main event the Body Keeps the Score. This has been very interesting to read this month and have people discuss on the Facebook page. It's been very I want to say difficult yet wonderful. And our discussion leader is Nancy Pratt, and we'll just let her take it away from here. All right, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and go to my slides and start the slideshow. All right, loading, loading. Oh no, I didn't want to share. Sorry, hit the wrong button. There we go. 
All right, Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma by Bessel van der Kolk. And I'm going to give you a overview. Part of the prologue is in here. So um, Dr. van der Kolk uses his own experience and research as a psychiatrist to describe and evaluate the effectiveness of some principal developments in the treatment of trauma patients. The book begins with a discussion of innovations such as the widespread pre prescription of drugs to treat mental illness and the use of brain imaging techniques by neuroscientists to understand the effects of trauma on the brain. In chapter four, the central thesis begins to develop that dissociation is the essence of trauma, particularly dissociation between the body and the brain. Trauma victims physically relive the past, which is usually emotional responses, which would allow them to feel love and trust shuts down in the body's attempt to survive a threat which no longer exists in the present. The aim of the book is to explore how best to treat trauma following, or excuse me, allowing those who've experienced it to gain control over their lives. So I've divided the book or the slides into the different parts of the book. There's five parts. And so there's several chapters. I'll give a brief synopsis of that section, highlight some things that I found interesting, and then we'll open it up to questions from uh, or comments from you all. Um, I'm trying to, okay. So the first part is the rediscovery of trauma, chapters one through three. And this section emphasizes the mysterious nature of human psychology and responses to trauma in particular. It focuses on three approaches to trauma. The traditional talking cure, which de derives from Freudian analysis, drug therapy used for treatment, and brain imaging primarily for diagnoses and research, which began in the 1990s. The author points out where these approaches have been helpful, then discusses their limitations. Because the author's name is a mouthful, a lot of times I will just say the author, but you can refer to him as Bessel or Dr. Van de Kolk or he or however. So part one is a preamble in which the author provides background to his own approach. He introduces case studies to which he later returns briefly explaining the origins of each patient's trauma. So as, as has already been noted, these case studies can make harrowing reading and emphasize the seriousness of the author's research and the work of others on which he relies. He makes the point that much of this research comes at a high cost. His own experiments involve patients reliving their trauma and being seriously upset by the process. And I just want to say this is the second time I've read the book. I read it about a year and a half ago when my children had gifted me the book and it sat on my shelf for a while and then I read it and it took me several months to get through it but this time I had to keep pushing through because I knew I had this presentation um, and this book group to prepare for and it can be difficult to get through it. Um, so there's a, a quote a lot of the information I have on these slides is taken directly from the book. Sometimes I have it uh, items in direct quotes. So he says, trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way brain, 
mind and brain manage perceptions. And it was really, I guess, kind of astounding to me to realize that the PTSD diagnosis was accepted in 1980. And I realized that was over 40 years ago, but it seems like it's become such a part of our culture that I was surprised, I guess it was kind of surprised that it was only 40 years ago. And he also says the way medicine approaches human suffering has always been determined by the technology or technologies available at any given time. And then the triumph of pharmacology, the drug revolution that started out with so much promise may in the end have done as much harm as good. Um, one of the first stories he talks about is uh, a, a veteran of the Vietnam War, I believe, Tom, and this was in 1978. And he realizes um, how little literature medical literature there is on, there was available at the time about Tom's condition, um, which has led, I think, the author to decades of work and research. It's also interesting that uh, we read in chapter three that the brain scans show a shift in activity from the left to the right side of the brain. That part is more, uh, so the left side is more emotional and visual, whereas the left side of the brain recalls the facts about what has happened, the right side remembers how it felt. Most of the time, the two sides of the brain work together fairly smoothly. Um, but when the left side of the brain fails to function during the memory of a trauma, this prevents the patient from viewing the action analytically in context as an experience that happened a long time ago. So that I believe is it for what I have for part one, chapters one through three. I'd like to open it up now to anyone's comments about if you have anything you would like to talk about in relation to these chapters. And if not, that's totally fine because there's plenty uh, other. <laughs> yeah, go yeah, ahead. See, I, I was a little surprised actually um, at, through the reading. And it wasn't just necessarily one through three, but he said it in several of the other places was uh, how ineffective it seemed the talking was. He almost made it sound like the drugs and physical uh, things helped a lot more than just talking through it, which is surprising because when you think of therapy, you usually think of going in and sitting down and talking through it, but that that didn't seem to be very effective, which was surprising to me. Yes, and thank you for bringing that up. And I think in particular with PTSD, it's um, that's one of the things he emphasizes throughout the book is how ineffective that was. And really to some point how ineffective drugs are. The other thing I was kind of astounded by was that Prozac was, I think it was 19... Oh, I can't, I had it somewhere in my notes. Um, when that became available, I thought, wait, Prozac's only been available for a relatively short period of time. It seems like, again, that seems like one of those um, things that's been around forever, but not so. Um, I don't see anybody. Oh, Rebecca, sorry, go ahead. 
Sorry, did I raise my hand right? I don't know. It's no, you did. It was today. just a light background <laughs> and I wasn't noticing it. Yeah, no. And I moved my studio. So it's like the sun rises on it. So I'm like, oh, <laughs> celestial looking. So no, the whole concept of the idea that your brain is telling your body that something is happening to you right there in the moment, which isn't, but your body is reacting in that way. You know, that's just so fascinating. And we've all experienced that where it's so real. You just literally feel physical emotions or feelings or stress or pain. It reminded me, I thought about this a lot when we read Remind Me Land, and I think it was Free Will. I think it was Sam Harris where they talked about a, a brain beyond your brain. I think, was it Free Will, Landon? It I may have been, yeah, that you yeah, really I think didn't it was. have so, a lot of choice. Yeah, 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 no, just that there is, you know, and so when when I first became aware of that kind of concept that, oh, I'm feeling these feelings, this trauma, this stress, it's because my body, my brain thinks something is happening that isn't. And I tried to adopt this idea of outthinking my own brain, kind of just getting beyond it somehow and telling myself you are not feeling this. You are not, this is not happening to you, you know? So, so reading more about it in the book, um, just the techniques that they talked about. Cause I mean, I just kind of evolved on that concept, but didn't really have any tools to figure out how you do that. Even though you're telling yourself with your brain kind of outside of your brain, that this is not real, you're still feeling it. It's very real to you at the moment. So the book was very helpful to me in that way to, to just the strategies and the tools to basically trick your own brain into behaving again, right. And putting it back in perspective. So it was absolutely fascinating to me. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. All right. We'll go on to the next section. This is your brain on trauma, which is chapters four through six. The author sees his field. Okay. I don't know what just happened. There. The author sees his field as the connection between the body and the brain. The body is also his principal diagnostic tool in discovering the nature and extent of the patient's mental trauma. He has studied connections between the body and the brain and is particularly sensitive to any problem posed by a lack of connection. And this idea of connection, he returns to again and again. Trauma patients often experience dissociation from those around them, their friends, families, and the rest of society since no one else understands the nature of their experiences. The experiences which cause the trauma are also dissociated from the rest of their lives, continually revisited with a unique intensity. They also experience dissociation within themselves, meaning that they feel as if their bodies, physical experiences and emotions do not belong to them. And then I, as you can see, highlighted this um, with bold type, psychological healing like physical healing means restoring the links broken by trauma. I think he talks about that idea a lot. <clears throat> Next slide on the same section. So if you remember, uh, I think it's in chapter four, yes, it starts with a story of a boy named Gnome who was in um, elementary school and witnessed the attack on the World Trade Center in New York on 9-11. And he and his classmates and his teachers were able to run away and escape unharmed. And the next day, Noam drew a picture of what had happened in which he included a trampoline at the bottom of the Twin Towers, his idea for saving everyone who had to jump out of the windows um, for any future attack. So his agency in running away and his optimism in planning for the future are in stark contrast to the paralysis experienced by victims of trauma. 
So a couple of quotes here. Being traumatized mean, means continuing to organize your life as if the trauma were still going on, unchanged and immutable, as every new encounter or event is contaminated by the past. And the most important job of the brain is to ensure our survival, even under the most miserable conditions. I really liked his discussion of how the brain is organized, uh, especially the, these different levels of the brain and how it's built from the bottom up. So first we have that ancient animal brain, which is sometimes referred to as the reptilian brain, then the limbic system, which can be referred to as the mammalian brain. And the reptilian and the mammalian brain make up that um, what we would call the emotional brain at the heart of the central nervous system. And its task is to look out for your welfare. Uh, another part of the brain is the thalamus, which acts as the cook within the brain, and the amygdala, which acts as the brain smoke detector. These are terms that the author uses. And then on top of those brains, we have the rational brain, the neurocortex. And the frontal lobes, especially that medial prefrontal cortex, Cortex is, uh, he refers to as the watchtower. Um, I really appreciated the idea that not all people respond to trauma exactly the same way. And I've known this idea of fight, flight, or freeze, but to see it um, with the brain scans uh, is so interesting. Other terms for fight, flight, and freeze can be focused, frantic, and collapsed. So if you remember the story of Stan and UT's car accident, and they were in Minnesota and they had this, they were in this horrific uh, multi, many multi-car pileup and they responded differently. And after the car accident, they were having trouble just being able to get on with their lives. And as part, they got in with one of the researchers that um, the author worked with, and they had brain scans done. So if you remember Stan's brain scan, when they would um, have him go back and kind of relive that car accident, his brain scan just lit up and it shows his flashback in action. But Yudi's brain scan, just was almost nothing was lit up. Lit up. It was, she was blanking out. So that is like the fight versus the freeze response. And I don't know about any of you, but I have certainly had uh, times when people say, or I've even said to my children, unfortunately, well, why can't you just do this? So-and-so was able to respond in a certain way. Or why can't, um, you know, you get past this. Well, we all respond differently. And this to me was just a really obvious way in which uh, from, from brain imaging that shows how differently we can respond to that. And we don't have control over that. Our brains, our bodies are just going to do that. He also talks about polyvagal theory, theory um, especially related to social relationships and understanding trauma. And uh, another quote from the book is, most of our energy is devoted to connecting with others. This idea of reciprocity, being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. And the ANS, our autonomic nervous system, 
regulates three fundamental physiological states. The level of safety determines which one of these is active, activated at any particular time. So people with PTSD shut off terrifying sensations, but that also deadens their capacity to feel fully alive. And this idea of agency, of feeling, of feeling of being in charge of your life, and that the mind needs to be re-educated to feel physical sensations. There's one more slide. Oh, nope, that's it for this section. All right. Any thoughts or comments on this section here about the brain, about the different ways that people uh, respond to trauma? Yes, Bruce. Well, I'm just going to bring up my privileged white boy traumas related to the Mormon church. Um, I still occasionally have nightmares about having to go back on my mission. And that used to be very frequent. It is less frequent now. I mean, maybe every year or two where before it was really frequent. Also just you know, as I was reading this, I'm going like, okay, I wasn't sexually abused. I wasn't physically abused, but I was always taught that I was fundamentally broken because I was gay. And um, like, I have no friends from high school or college at BYU at all, zero. Because I mean, how could you have friends when you were, you know, in the closet hiding? And um, as I mentioned um, to some of the organizers of the book club, I spoke at my parents' funeral. I know nothing about them. Uh, I knew what restaurants they liked. I knew what they thought about our family business. They owned apartment buildings and I ran it for the last 20 years of their lives. But knowing anything about it because um, the culture that we grew up in, you couldn't feel or say anything that wasn't in the wasn't in the religious orthodoxy um and um yeah so you know as i was reading this i'm like okay i wasn't you know i never went to to war i wasn't physically or sexually abused but i have these things that i guess i view kind of as a form of PTSD just because they've affected my life, you know, for decades. Thank you. And whether or not we have PTSD from a traumatic experience, we've still had a traumatic experience. And uh, we may have some residual effects that uh, can, can be similar to PTSD without realizing it. All right, Ren. Yeah, hi. Um, I just wanted to say, I liked the, that you highlighted the, the aspect that not all people respond to trauma in exactly the same way. Um, <clears throat> that's one thing as I've, as I've kind of gone through, and I appreciate what Bruce shared there, because I think <laughs> a lot of us have, have experienced um, maybe similar things, just church related um, and maybe more and maybe other things. The other thing that I was going to say too, is that 
you know, not all people respond to trauma in exactly the same way, but, and also different things are traumatic for, for everybody. Right. So I've tried to really, as I've done my own, um, therapy and, uh, <laughs> you know, gone through my, my own things. Um, one of the things that I have tried to be, and one of the things that I've come to understand about myself is I, when people share things with me, I need to be understanding of, I, I try not to make the judgment that, oh, why is that so, you know, why is that traumatic? Why would that event have been traumatic for you? You know, where maybe it was for them, but, you know, it, so everybody's different and everybody responds to those things differently. Ren, I really appreciate that comment. So thank you so much for sharing that. You're absolutely right. Not everyone's going to respond the same way. That little boy, Noam, in chapter four, who was able to draw a picture of the trampoline after 9-11, and it seems like his brain was able to process through the trauma. There's other people who were directly in that space as well that had much different responses. So thank you, that's an excellent point. Brian. Yeah, I just wanted to comment. Um, this is something that I got from my wife who is a therapist and she had described to me that trauma is just basically any event that exceeds someone's capacity to process in a healthy way. And so, something that exceeds one person's capacity may not exceed someone else's capacity, but once that threshold has been reached and they aren't able to process that, that's when the fight or flight, the limbic system, all these traumatic responses that you've been talking about are triggered. And even though PTSD, according to official DSM criteria for diagnosis is very specific and that it has to be, you know, maybe a war event or a sexual event or something, that doesn't mean that someone might be experiencing an event that's not one of those specific criteria, but exceeds their ability to process. And then they are very traumatized and their reaction is the same or potentially the same as someone that's experiencing a, an event that is allowed as a PTSD diagnosis. And once you've gotten to that point, then the, the response is the same. And so the treatment is gonna be the probably the similar regardless of what the actual initiating event is and so that just goes back to what we've been talking about that it's different for different people because we all come with different um backgrounds on what and and what we've been educated on and what we're able to process and something that might be a minor event in your life you know is a blessing because you have that capability and have learned the coping skills to process in a healthy way, but that's not true for everybody. And so um, I'm just kind of echoing what others have said. Thank you. I appreciate that. And as uh, that's an excellent point, and I wrote down, you know, that exceeds person's ability to process because I want to remember that concept. I really, uh, that really resonated. Lori. I'll make it super short, but, um, I had long COVID and I thought several times that I was going to die. So I actually did, um, get diagnosed with PTSD and, um, working with account, like it, I had full body shakes and I couldn't go into public and I'm very outgoing and I love being out with people, but I just turn into a different person and I could see all of these things happen. And this 
really resonated with me. And then just to plug, I did do EMDR and it did work. Like, and it also helped with um, church trauma that wasn't necessarily PTSD, I guess would be classified, but was pretty traumatic for me and was able to help with that as well. So I just thought I would share that. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. We will be talking about EMDR some more as we get through the slides. So thank you so much. I appreciate that, Bruce. I just had one additional thought related to my original com comments. Um, you know, I've always felt I had a certain level of, um, I don't know, PTSD or, or effect from my mission. You know, one, it didn't cure me from being gay, and it was two freaking years of, you know, guilted if you slept in five minutes or if you took an afternoon off or if something was going wrong, it was your fault. And that prolonged nature of two years of that, you know, being monitored and controlled and made to feel bad, you know, it wasn't like, you know, prisoner of war camp being tortured and stuff, you know, that I guess that's kind of long-term too, but it, it was a very long-term process. And then also, if you're feeling bad about yourself because of religious beliefs, sometimes that goes on for decades for all of us and stuff. So that was just kind of my kind of additional thought to that. Thank you. Um, I didn't serve a mission, uh, which, now post-Mormon, I'm grateful for, but two of my children did. And another one was called, but then COVID hit and he, anyway, he just never served. Uh, we count that as a blessing now, but the more I read people's accounts of their mission, especially as they're deconstructing Mormonism, I'm thinking, how is this okay for anyone the author in this book uses the term agency a number of times, and it always caught my attention, I think, because we talk about agency in the church, uh, and you don't really hear that term a whole lot just in out in um, society. But that sense of feeling safe in your own body and having control, whereas trauma victims feel unsafe in their own bodies and no sense of agency in their life. And so it's interesting um, with when you think of a mission and what's required there. Daniel, did you have a comment? Okay. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. Did you want to say something? Yeah, just listening to the Bruce talk, it occurred to me that, you know, I can't hear you. Can anybody else? No, we're not hearing you, Daniel. Okay. Okay. We're going to go on, and Daniel, you're, please come back. Um, all right. I'm going to go on to the next part, the minds of children, which yeah, is Dan chapters. Yeah, Daniel, we can hear you just barely, so there's something wrong with your volume, and we'll... Uh... Okay. Thanks, Bruce. Um, this was the hardest part, probably the hardest part for me, um, reading all these stories about children's experiences. Um, a lot of the book is 
gut-wrenching and heartbreaking, um, but just to say, especially this part, the minds of children, four chapters, chapter seven through 10. So chapter seven begins again with the, the, uh, importance, of the, um, the importance of connection, this time between parents, particularly primary caregivers and children. So the author emphasizes that the term trauma refers to anything which breaks this connection actively or passively through violence or coldness. He adds corroborative detail to his thesis that the body is more sensitive than the mind and is a more accurate repository of memories. The idea of we are profoundly social creatures, our lives consist of finding our place within the community of human beings. And then he talks about um, this dance of attunement between mothers and children and this idea of mere neurons, which give us the capacity for empathy. And a quote, with good enough caregivers, children learn that broken connections can be repaired. It is through the experience of being cared for by their parents that children learn to take care of themselves as they grow up. Children who do not form secure bonds with their parents develop coping strategies, pretending not to care for or, or not drawing attention to themselves by continual, or sorry, drawing attention to themselves by continual crying and screaming. The motif of connection and disconnection occurs in two principal ways, the connections between different forms of trauma in childhood and the connection between being an abused child and becoming a dysfunctional adult. The impact of, and, and this is where he gets into some political um, pieces. The impact of trauma focuses on society as a whole is also discussed. This is difficult to quantify in purely social terms. So the argument is based largely on economics. The US spends $84 billion per year on, on incarceration. And if the author is correct, a large number of these incarcerated have suffered from childhood trauma. Norway, which has more progressive methods of trauma diagnosis and treatment, incarcerates citizens at less than a tenth of the rate that the U.S. does, 71 per 100,000 people as opposed to 781 per 100,000. This part of the book includes a more explicitly political agenda. He, does, uh, he argues not only that trauma should be understood in terms of connections between the body and the brain, but that the U.S. lags behind other countries in researching and understanding the nature of trauma. This has a devastating impact on trauma victims whose lives are wasted, but it also affects everyone in the country when those who could have contributed to society are compelled to be nothing but a burden. That is a summary from uh, another source that I took. As I read it, I'm like, that, that does not sound very, very good. Um, and if you'll remember this ACE study or adverse childhood experiences and um, where traumatic life experiences during childhood and adolescence are far more common than expected. I think it's a, it's a 10 question um, questionnaire, <laughs> questions. Um, and the higher you score on that ACE, um, the more likely there is to have chronic depression in childhood, as well as major health problems. Um, one of the, the main presenting problems that they were looking at was obesity, which may be a marker for the real problem. 
And if you remember, they realized as they were treating obesity in this one study, that that was uh, just a mask or a marker for other problems and that there was some real benefit to uh, the person who was obese um, that then when they were addressing the, the obesity, there were other issues that needed that also came up. Um, this idea of developmental trauma. Um, in the case of troubled children with histories of abuse and neglect who show up in clinics, schools, hospitals, and police stations, the traumatic roots of their behavior are less obvious, particularly because they rarely talk about having been hit, abandoned, or molested even when asked. Developmental trauma is also not yet a recognized diagnosis. And uh, this quote, social support is a biological necessity, not an option. And this reality should be at the backbone of all prevention and treatment. We can assume that parents do the best they can, but all parents need help to nurture their kids. James Heckman has shown that quality early childhood programs that involve parents and promote basic skills in disadvantaged children more than pay for themselves in improved outcomes. Let's see, nope. Okay, that's the last slide for that section. Um, again, if anyone has comments to make, feel free to do that. I have some other notes that, uh, oh, Ren, go ahead, and then I will talk after that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're, um, you're totally fine. Uh, just, just one comment I had, and this may not be a real popular opinion, but I don't like it when people compare the United States to other countries, like especially like Norway. And the reason I say that is because social programs like this that could help, and I'm not saying that the U.S. should not do this or even attempt, but when you try to compare a nation that has you know, 350 million people in it to a nation that has maybe four or five million people, those social programs are much are administered in much easy much easier ways. Um, it's a little bit easier to control. Um, it's just a smaller country, and so it's hard when you say, "Well, you know, you compare this to that um, type thing," and and because the implication is that they have all the answers. Well, I don't know if they have all the answers. I guess it depends on what we're talking about. So that's one of the, I, I always take it with a grain of salt when they start comparing us, you know, comparing our nation to another country, especially a much smaller one where these types of social programs could be administered, could be helped. I think his point though is valid in that involvement of parents and good parenting skills are essential for child development. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate you pointing that out. I think for me, the, the significance of those numbers is just, um, okay, so what, what does that mean for the United States? Where, where could we be doing a better job in, in those areas? Um, and you're right to compare a, a, a nation with over 300 million to a nation with, I don't know what Norway's population is, but much smaller um, is, is that really a fair comparison? But on some level, maybe, you know, I, I think there is some validity to looking at that. Um, 
I was going to see if there was anything I wanted to talk about. Oh, Roy, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm Roy. This is my first time on here. I live in oh, Redmond. Awesome. Thank you. I'm in Redmond, Washington. Um, I just wanted to make a comment. I These chapters were really moving for me. I'm a behavior analyst and we have kind of a saying in our field that says, when you look at like all of the contexts and all of the learning histories and all of the things involved in people's behavior, that all behavior makes sense. And I think that's one of like the most compassionate things um, that we can kind of bring to the table. Just thinking about those people who are incarcerated or childhood trauma, just because you have some of those traumas doesn't mean that you will end up in prison. Um, there's many different intersectionalities and different things that happen to different people and why they go where they go. But I also just think having that concept that all behavior makes sense helps us not to label people as crazy or bad or um, any of those things. And just to kind of try and put on a compassionate lens um, about there's lots of context and history to all of us that we don't understand when we're seeing a person just in one moment of their time. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Roy. I really appreciate, appreciate that, Landon. Yeah, I was really su surprised kind of by the, uh, by when they talked about parents and how much parents need help to nurture their kids. I, I think we're unique in the animal kingdom because I, you know, maybe evolution over time is, is sorted out in the animal kingdom, you know, good parents from bad parents, because it doesn't seem like, a, a, you know, you, sometimes you see bad parents in the animal kingdom, uh, you know, but for the most part, they raise their young without a lot of, you know, they have absolutely no training or any way to get it. But it was amazing that as I looked at it, all the numbers that they were pointing out, you know, if you did this, it was more likely to cause a problem. If a parent did this to a child, it would, you know, especially some of the, the sexual things and stuff, how it was just thousands of times greater chance that they would have problems. And, uh, you know, so I, I look back at our evolution, I say, oh, evolutionarily wise, we should be strong parents, but but it, it really appears that humans aren't. We really, we really need outside sources and outside structure. And maybe that's where the church really stepped in and helped a lot, I think, uh, in, in raising kids. And now that you're out of the church, that can sometimes be a, a challenge. You know, what, what do I do? What programs do I use? Where do I get help? Uh, so that was just something I was thinking about is, you know, now that I'm out, my, my kids are grown, but it's still where, you know, where do you get help with that uh, in parenting skills? Because it's almost like you have to have a manual to, to do it. Right. And I think that's uh, where the idea, it takes a village, um, that, that idea, of, it takes uh, a lot, a lot of people. I also thought, Bruce, I'll get you in just a second. I thought it was interesting that you know, the children are often unable to express or unwilling to express what has happened to them. Um, but they are, if they talk about what happens, they may either be sent back to their, their caregiver who is perpetuating some of this abuse or put in a foster care system, which has its own issues many times. So, these, these children have, they're kind of in one of the worst situations when we talk about PTSD that happens to 
people at war or in a, a traumatic um, event like 9-11 or something, those are often as adults when they're having those um, experiences. And they may have developed some ability for resilience through their lifetime and able to face um, those experiences in a different way, even if they do have PTSD, but children, they're just developing. And it really makes me wonder, when are we going to see some other recognition, recon, some, um, my brain is not working right now, but of this developmental trauma or what some people call complex PTSD where and neither of which I believe is a diagnosis that's recognized, but the idea of this repeated traumas over and over and over again. Um, Bruce, I just had a, a comment on on uh, Landon's comment about you know the animal kingdom seems to know how to raise kids. I I I had a Siamese cat growing up and she lived to nineteen, but she had a litter of kittens and she was the worst mom. She would feed her kittens. And I used to have to go find her and bring her back. And then we took her to the vet and it turned out she was already pregnant again. And, um, you know, I'm just going like, okay, those kittens wouldn't have made it if I, you know, didn't help feed them and make her go feed them. And so you know, the whole natural selection thing with, with humans, we live so long and, you know, the negative effects of bad parenting. But I keep wondering, I'm listening to a, a podcast series about um, Mr. Rogers. And, you know, if you've seen the, the kind of documentary mm -hmm. on him, you're going like, wouldn't it be nice if there was a non-religious based parenting and family interaction guide that would have healthy relationships and stuff because I know my parents took their cues from the church and many of the things were quite good but many of the things were extremely bad so I don't know just a couple yeah. of thanks for those thoughts Rebecca yeah I was kind of going to talk about the same topic it made me realize that yeah when I was raising kids um Definitely the church was helpful as far as community and other moms and resources and things like that. Then I thought about my own childhood and I had a mother I've talked about before who was completely bedridden. So she was out of the picture. And then I had a father that spent every waking moment at church and in church activities. So, and I had never thought of myself as being raised alone or raising myself because I had two parents, but, you know, as an adult, I had some of the anxieties and the, you know, introverted extrovert kind of situation that you come from that you find in people that were raised that way. And I always thought, well, that wasn't me. It wasn't until I started thinking about it. I'm like, nope, I pretty much had absent parents in every way. And in that sense, the church involvement, I mean, I think a lot of you can relate to that either yourselves or having been raised that way, that a lot of parents are absent in the church because it's so high demand and that definitely impacts children. And some of them, you know, depending on their circumstance and personality, you know, can impact them for a lifetime. I think like it did me. And I'm only just barely starting to realize that that's what happened. So interesting. Oh, thank you. Great comments. Lori. I actually am talking about the same thing. I really felt the same way. Like, especially when Landon was talking, I had this discussion with my brother who is still 
in the church. And I wouldn't say hanging by a thread, hanging by a few threads. And we had this debate and he was like, but how are you going to raise your kids? Like you have no, like nothing. And I was like, but don't I have values? Like, can't I have values? Um, I probably am not going to encourage my kids to go out and sleep with everyone because that is physically and emotionally dangerous for them. And we'll talk about those things. And when I was in the church, I never talked to my kids about that because those were the rules. They had the rules. And I just, I don't know, like it, it's really hard. I definitely feel like the church helped when I was a younger mom, for sure, with that structure. But I also, just like you guys were saying, it was so incredibly damaging. And now as my my 21-year-old daughter is experimenting with drinking, which is developmentally appropriate, you know, we're, we're experimenting together because I don't know what, I, and I don't even know what to tell her. And it's, I don't know. I don't know. I was just thinking about that from the church and, and like, especially with my brother just being, well, but you have to have the rules, but don't we have values? Aren't we inherently good? We are. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's almost like the church becomes a plug and play kind of situation where you're like, great, here it is. I don't have to think about it because they've already done this for me. Yeah, exactly. And even in my marriage, we never even talked about anything. We just went in because we were were both Mormon. We knew what we were going to do. Never even talked about it. That could have been a serious deal killer. Yeah, I find it fascinating now to look at those things that I really didn't spend any time looking at because the church already told me what to think and what to do about them. And I was a very devout member, so I would just do those things. Um, I find that it's very expansive and um, I find I have a curious mind and that uh, it's fun. Um, Daniel. All right. Am I mic'd now? Can you hear me? Yes. Sounds good. Hey, nice. Uh, this actually ties back into what I was thinking before, but also uh, Bruce's comment when he was talking about, you know, the trauma that he experienced, but also it ties into what we're talking about just now with, with childhood trauma and how it seems to be, there's something special about childhood trauma, especially when a parent inflicts that trauma on a child. Um, and, and it's because we've evolved in such a way that as small children, we look to our parents unconditionally. We, we just look to them like they have all the answers. We've evolved to follow them point blank. I remember once my son was really small. He was probably, you know, maybe two or three years old, but he was sitting in my lap doing something and he bit me and just joking around. I was like, I'll bite him back. And so I bit him back and he started to cry. And what, did he, what was the first thing he did? He turned to me for comfort. He like buried himself in my neck for Mm -hmm. comfort because he was sad about it. And and this book talked about that, that children, even when abused by their parents, given the choice, will run back to their parents. And because of that special relationship and that special place, parents inflicting trauma on their children is, is uniquely bad. And it occurs to me, going back to Bruce's comment, that maybe it's not the same as war or other things, but... In the church, our parents inflicted a lot of trauma on us because they sold us these lies and this way of being that that wasn't correct and and wasn't good for a lot of us. And so that special type of trauma, I think, is, you know, I said it's unique. It's a parents inflicting this trauma upon children. And so, like I said, while it's not the same as some other ones, it's uniquely bad. 
Yeah, thank you. And I think, um, you know, I did the same, but you just said, Daniel, where, you know, parents inflict the church as maybe a trauma, traumatic thing on their children. Well, I did the same thing to my children. I've only been out of the church for going on seven years. And my children are now all adults. And uh, what I'm grateful for is the relationship I have with them. Now, I appreciate the phrase good enough parents and the author uses that phrase um, because I know I wasn't perfect and I'm, I know I made mistakes. I don't think any parents cannot make mistakes. It's just what happens. Um, but we, we've all maybe in some ways done this to our children in some ways. But again, good enough parents are able, like you with your son, you were able to comfort your son uh, when he turned to you for you know, that, when you were just joking around with him, but that biting incident, you know, um, that's what I hope I'm doing now with my children in a larger sense, like as we all deconstruct the church together. Sean. This, uh, this conversation is really tugging on some emotional strings, I have to admit. Um, I, I just wanted to mention real quick, when, uh, when I was young, um, my family was pretty dysfunctional. And, uh, you know, there were eight of us children, and we, we kind of pulled together and, and uh, tried to support each other as best as possible. And for a long time, I prided myself on... Uh, how crazy our family was and yet how well-rounded I ended up being. <laughs> well, decades later, I, I, um, I'm learning about uh, life and, and, and dealing with my own trauma and, and whatnot. I, I take this ACE study and, uh, you know, on a scale from one to 10, I, I actually scored an eight. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that kind of surprised me. I thought, oh, I, well, it surprised me in one way, but in, in another way, it, it didn't because, uh, because there's so much um, emotional baggage just tied up in, uh, in my childhood experiences. And, uh, but I have to say, for a long time, the church was the only structure that I had. It was the only thing that I could really rely on to help me get through some of these really trying, difficult times. And now that I'm going through this, you know, I'm one of those still members who's kind of hanging by a thread, um, not in terms of my belief, but in terms of my activity. And, uh, and um, the, the whole world is just kind of unraveling. Um, but this, this conversation is just really, it's help, helping me get a better perspective on uh, just what I, what I experienced as a child. And now I'm looking at my, my own children and seeing how they struggle as young parents and thinking, Oh man, they really don't know what they're doing either. You know, we look to our parents and they think that they have all the answers, but they don't, they, they really don't. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention a few of those things that have kind of popped in my mind and I, I'm not sure what to make of it all, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's really causing me to think. Well, thank you, Sean, for sharing that. Uh, I would say it's a journey. Um, 
that's, you know, at first I categorized what I was experiencing with the church as a faith crisis, because that's what it felt like a crisis. Um, and then as I've gotten further along, I, I just call it a journey. It's part of the life journey that I never expected it to be on. Also, um, Sean, you referenced the ACE study and having taken that, anyone can Google the ACE questionnaire and you can take that, you can find that. Bruce. I just had a concept that I, I know I've seen it on Reddit and experienced in my whole life as being a church orphan. Uh, my father was bishop as I grew up for 12 years total. Uh, seven years the first time, then a couple, three-year break, and then um, five years the next time. And I can remember trying to talk to him and I would have to make uh, an appointment with his church executive secretary if if I wanted to even find him. And that's a concept, you know, that I've seen where, you know, especially the fathers are so gone all the time with their church responsibilities. So it's a concept, I think, that's kind of there in the Mormon context. Yeah, thank you. Um, I experienced the same type of thing when I was growing up. My father was called into the bishopric. I was probably two or three. And he spent the next, I don't know, 30 years in leadership positions, mostly bishopric, bishop, state president, all of that. So I totally get not having a dad in the home, but it was always framed in the way of, well, your family must be getting blessings from your dad being in those positions. I don't know that how I would even quantify what blessings were those. Um, Nelson. Yeah, I'll tell you, when we first had this book on the list, I was thought, oh, not some more of this cycle babble BS that we're going to have to deal with. This book changed my mind, I will tell you. Um, Particular, and I heard about this A study, uh, this A stuff, a couple of years ago. And again, I didn't it didn't really make much of an impression on me because I think partially because of the person that was presenting it wasn't making wasn't really making it clear as to what it was about. And this author, I think, put a lot of this together. Uh, I spent ten years in the uh, working in the criminal justice system, prosecuted a lot of domestic violence cases. So I dealt a lot, you know, women dealing with trauma. Um, for several years, I was involved with um, a woman that had um, um, a lot of foster kids that she fostered. And, um, you know, my son, I call him my son. He's, um, I have no legal obligation or rights to him. I have nothing, but um, he was adopted by this woman when he was about about three years old, about when I started having a relationship with her. That, and um, so I still, we split up. I still consider him my son. We do things together all the time as a parent would. But I think of some of the stuff with him, he went to her house as a foster child at 18 years old, is, or 18 months old. His leg was broken in five places by his mother. And uh, well, she says it wasn't her, it was the boyfriend, but whoever it was, um, his leg was broken in five places. And she describes when he first 
showed up within the first two months. She, he was at her house. He would sit in the high chair and just stare out into space. There was nothing they could do to him, do for him, to comfort him. You know, they would try to hold him and he would kind of push away, just lay there, no emotion whatsoever for months and months at a time. By the time I got involved with him, he was a much, appeared to be a much more happy, go, no kid. But now at 17, I think we see some of those effects coming back, 15, 16, 17 year old. You know, I know there was a comment made towards the end of the book by the author about wanting people to be dependent, but having to be interdependent as well, because you can't do both. I mean, you really got to have people, but you got to be able, you know, and this kid, he is the most wants to be one of the most independent people. He knows everything. And this is partly, I think, just being a 17-year-old too. But he thinks he knows everything. He knows the way to accomplish everything. You can't tell him anything. But then on the other hand, he is one of the most needy 17-year-olds I've ever met in my life as well. He um, can't figure out how to keep his bank account together. And he makes money doing YouTube and makes some pretty good money. He had a blowout on his tire the other day and couldn't figure out how to even hardly get off the road to um, address that. But I go back to and I look at it and I think, you know, the, the, AC, the ACE events that he had in his life in the first 18 months are probably more than, than, I, ever, than I could ever come up with at all. And I think, and then watching other foster kids that were in her house as well, and you just kind of like, okay, but this is over, that's over with. We've put you in a better environment. Um, but then also as he was talking about, and I'm kind of rambling a little now, but he was talking a little bit about too, just the kids that are in foster care. You know, there's a permanency word. Well, I heard that word permanency so many times. And so I think one of the biggest downfalls we've got in our behavioral health system in this country and maybe across the world as well is that and I don't want to offend anybody behavioral health professionals that might be on our call with us, but I think they're lacking in their training and their understanding because you see so many people that just, it's, you know, as Landon said, the counseling doesn't, the talking doesn't work. It doesn't help. It needs so much more. And, um, you know, it was interesting too. I was talking to my kid's mom one evening and, and I was told, you know, I started mentioning about I was reading this book and she got, I said, I'm reading a book that, talks a lot about that stuff. And she goes, yeah, somebody referred me to a book too called The Body Keeps the Score. And I'm like, that's the book I'm talking about. <laughs> so it's very interesting. So, you know, and one of the things too, uh, and then I'll, I'll let everybody else go on, but you know, he was talking about the revisions to the DSM four or five, whichever version it was at that time, where they had things, you know, some of the professionals wanted to add into it but the American Psychiatric Association, whatever, no, we got to get depressed. We're not worried about that. There's not a diagnosis for it, so you can't treat it. And I think that's one of our big problems. And um, again, like I said, when you started this book, I thought it was just more of that cycle babble BS that people talk about, you know, that I would see people talking about during my sentencing hearings and, and dealing with people with women and domestic violence. Why do they stay? This book actually changed my mind on that and um, put a lot of things into perspective. If we could just figure out how to use that to come up with more answers would be helpful, but 
Yeah, Nelson, I, I appreciate um, what you've shared there. I think one thing that was really interesting that, that you shared is like, well, we put you, meaning this uh, child, you know, into a better situation, foster care, whatever, act better, right? We expect, we've given you a better situation. So now everything's fine. You should be acting better. But that doesn't take into account all the, the years and the effects of that. And what needs to happen, especially for a develop, a developing child, a developing mind and body. And I think that's why this section just was so hard for me to get through, just hearing those stories, reading those stories of what um, children were experiencing. Pat. Oh, you need to unmute, Pat. You're there, still go. Oh, there you go. Okay, go for it. So when I was in the church, I thought the church helped too. Until I, I, when you think when they go to, you go to church, you sit quietly with your family for an hour and everybody is split up. The husbands from the wives, the children's from their parents, the siblings from each other. They, we were never taught as a group. We we're just all separated to learn the doctrine of the church. There's no learning to, we were, our behavior was always an example. My daughter would say, well, that wasn't a very good example. And then I realized she wasn't learning how to behave herself and who she was. She was just acting so that she was a good example to her friends at school. There was no introspection. There was no teaching on how to deal with these traumas. They would, you did just, you go to the, the, um, interviews and you learn how to lie so you don't get in trouble the lucky ones who figure that out you're groomed to, to do anything for authority and it's you think it's helpful but the end we all get out and look at the struggle I got out at I was um 62 when I got out and I had to learn how to think and what I really liked and what I didn't like and it was so traumatic to realize that I, that my judgment had been off for all that time. And then I had raised this daughter who believed all that stuff. But aside from that, this book is just so incredible to me. And, and when I hear kids are resilient, they're not resilient because look how messed up we are as adults. Um, good at, at stuffing, at hiding, at, um, at disassociating. That's what they're good at because for most for the most part, no one has taught these kids how to deal with what they're going through. And just as an example, my dad grew up dirt poor. They, there was a time when they, um, he was born in 1928, so it's way back in the day. But there was a time in his childhood when he remembers walking up the roads, their family, trying to find weeds they could eat. That's how poor they were. My, my grandfather, was one of these people with a, um, you know, his uh, fuse. So he killed a horse once with a two by four because it made him mad. So this is this is what my husband, my dad grew up with, and he got, joins the service where he learned how to discipline his kids. Um, so he did better than than his dad. We all had we had a roof over our heads. We had food. We had clothing. He was absolutely absent emotionally from us at all. 
Now, the sad thing to me is, okay, so we grow up, we're totally messed up. But how do, so how do we fix this? Most people don't know about what this guy is teaching, how our brain works and what we need to um, untether ourselves from this horrible trauma. So to me, I felt really good reading it, but it's also very depressing. And the fact that people don't want to, in, in the book he was saying, somebody backed off because then they realized he had blamed his father for something. And these people don't want this in here. And I'm sure who's doing the most molesting and the most um, abusing and the most raping? It's mostly men. And those men, I, I am married to a wonderful man. And my late husband was a wonderful man. So I don't mean to be broad brushing men. But these, some of these people in power want to protect themselves. And they know what they were doing in, in government, in, in um the church, and so they pushed this off. So where do we learn? How can we change this to teach humanity what they do, how it affects the next generation and how our brains work and how what happened to me at two years old can still affect me as an adult because it's unresolved. You know, it's, it's, it's just confusing. It's, it's enlightening and helps me understand, but it makes me think we're screwed. That's, that's where I end up. Well, Pat, I understand what you're saying. And thank you for sharing that. Um, hopefully, as we get to the, uh, the fifth section and talk about more of the modalities for healing, um, maybe we'll see some hope there, right? Let's go on. Thank you, everyone, for your comments. We had a lot of comments on that section. Appreciate that. Um, part four, the imprint of trauma. This is chapters 11 and 12. This section of the book has a more historical focus describing both the history of psychiatry and the historical events which gave rise to many traumas, particularly the two world wars. Once again, the motif of connection appears as the author emphasizes how little the talking cure has altered since it was developed by Freud in the 1890s and how essentially similar civilian trauma is to the shell shock it suffered by soldiers in the First World War. The talking cure may require a healthy or a particularly acute intellect or great compassion on the part of the therapist while finding precisely the right combination of drugs is a matter of diagnostic ability. The author's preferred method of reconnecting patients with their own bodies, however, is not centered on the abilities of the doctor, but on the action taken by the patient. This means that one of the principal qualities required from the psychiatrist is humility. And a quote, under ordinary conditions, these two memory systems, the rational and emotional, remember when we talked about the brain and the different layers of the brain, and these two memory systems collaborate to produce an integrated response, but high arousal, not only changes the balance between them, but also disconnects other brain areas necessary for the proper storage and integration of incoming information. As a result, the imprints of traumatic experiences are organized not as coherent logical narratives, but in fragmented sensory and emotional traces, images, sounds, and physical sensations. Okay, that is that for short, uh, just one slide there. Wanted to see if there were anything else. 
Um, one, uh, I made some notes on these chapters and, and one, a couple things I wrote down. Traumatized people simultaneously remember too little and too much. Traumatic memories can be precipitated by specific triggers and traumatic memory is not condensed. Um, I think this, this is the chapter um, where he talks about people who have experienced traumatic events and then are in a, a court to be a witness for something and how often their accounts of that experience are fragmented, um, like we have talked about, so that they sometimes appear as not reliable witnesses. And also the understanding that those pieces of that traumatic event can often come back in phases and they'll be disorganized. So it's not that you're telling uh, as if a timeline, be able to tell which event happened and then the next event and then the next event. So to me, this was another important part of understanding how the brain works and especially in cases of trauma and remembering that trauma and being able to recount what happened. Um, and also this idea that culture shapes the expression of traumatic stress. And in the First World War, as soldiers came back and they had what we would now call PTSD, it was described as shell shock and how um, it was interesting, the comment was already made that the author says that we, can't treat something we don't have a name for, that we don't have a, a, a diagnostic name for. Any other thoughts or um, comments about this section? All right, Bruce. Well, just that last statement that you were saying, you know you have to have a vocabulary for it. Right. I think that's um, basically one of the deficit my experience with the church was, is I don't have a vocabulary for healthy family, healthy concepts, healthy sexuality, healthy interpersonal relationships and stuff. I, I'm lacking in a lot of that because that's you know the world i grew up in didn't have that it was obedience the rules like i was saying you know the rule follower father you know i was a pretty good rule follower and yeah just having a name and as i mentioned in the in the chat the book club reading list over the last now we're in our third year has given me you know, some vocabulary insight into how the world actually works, how I work, what's my place in the world. And as I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm 65, I'm probably in the last quarter of my life, you know, where, you know, how do I live the last part of my life where I'm happy with it, where I'm a, a good contributing part of my community and stuff. So yeah, that vocabulary I'm lacking in, and that's in part what the book club gives me. Oh, thank you. I really like the way you phrase that, to have a vocabulary for um, 
we we won't we don't know what we don't know is i think what you're saying too and once we have those words and those concepts that we can um, frame our experience with it can really help us to uh, express what we went through or whether it's in the church or otherwise right um excellent Something happened with my view here. Am I, it, does someone have their hand raised? I'm not seeing anybody else. No, we don't have any hands raised. Which is totally fine because we're gonna get into what I think is the best part of the book where it brings everything together. Part five, the paths to recovery. And in each of the chapters here, and we're gonna break these up um, two chapters at a time, but chapters 13 through 20, the author goes through explanations of different modalities, different things he's worked with, how he kind of came upon these different ways of working with patients, um, which I, I think is one of the, the highlights for me of the book. And I think like what Pat was saying, where do we get the hope? Um, you know, we're all messed up basically. So where's the hope? I think there is a lot of hope. And I also think um, it starts with each one of us who can come to an understanding of where we are. And I think of, of how I lived my life for 50 some years as a member of the church, for example, there's, there's other examples, but that's common to, to most of us here. Um, and where I am now, and there's, um, there's still a lot of discovery, things that I'm learning, which to me is exciting and also I think very hopeful. All right, so chapter 13, chapter 13 through 14. Chapter 13 starts with another shift in focus from the historical and explanatory to the personal and instructive. He addresses the trauma sufferer directly and tells them there are various ways of learning how to cope and he continues to address the therapist. This approach explains his critical attitude to what he calls top-down therapies, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, in which the ther therapist defines dysfunctional behavior and trains the patient to avoid it. Um, which is un unlike, well, contrasted to, I guess would have been a better way <laughs> to phrase that, um, to massage and yoga, which help patients to feel more at home in their bodies. CBT concentrates on the brain, mastering the body, meaning that it is a top-down strategy within the patient as well as between patient and therapist. Just as the patient must be at the center of their own recovery, so the body must be centered within this recovery. A treatment in which the patient has intellectually accepted that the trauma is over, but signs of stress remain in the body will not have been successful. And I think this too is where I think on the previous slide, um, the author mentions the psychiatrist needs to be humble and needs to have some humility there um, in really letting the patient um, work in working with the patient. Oh, wow, that was the end of that. Let's, let me go back, parts 13 and 14. Um, there's a quote that I, I made in my notes from chapter 13, that trauma robs you of the feeling that you are in charge of yourself. So again, that idea of agency. So robs you of the feeling you're in charge of yourself of what I will call self-leadership. And that's 
the author there. And then he says also, body awareness puts us in touch with our inner world, the landscape of our organism. Simply noticing our annoyance, nervousness, or anxiety immediately helps us shift our perspective and opens up new options other than our autonomic habitual reactions. Mindfulness puts us in touch with the transitory nature of our feelings and perceptions. When we pay focused attention to our bodily sensations, we can recognize the ebb and flow of our emotions and with that, increase our control over them. Um, also, he makes the statement that there's no one treatment of choice for trauma. Um, also in chapter 13, he talks about communal rhythms and syn synchrony. Um, he references the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa um, as they ended apartheid and were, were trying to move beyond that. And um, an account of some meetings that happened, uh, one meeting in particular, I think he references in the book of that Truth and Reconciliation Committee or, uh, and this work or commission. And this work was to try and heal all those, um, that period of apartheid and what that had done to South Africa. And as the emotions and words were heated in that meeting, at some point someone started, I believe they started singing and then more people started singing. And as they were singing, this, this communal rhythm, this attunement happened. Learning to attune, um, we get to experience that feeling of connection. Also, uh, where he talks about improvisation exercises and uh, he, also, he also does say CBT cannot be done with done well with PTSD patients, um, which I, again, the, the kind of talking therapy, although I have known people who have done well with CBT, a close family member in particular, um, but again, not necessarily a PTSD um, related. So it's not that CBT is not a good therapy to use. It's just may not be the best for um, people in with PTSD. I do want, I'm going to stop sharing this just for a minute. And I'm going to share something else. This can just go up. I do that before. Sorry, guys. Is this, how do I get rid of this bar? Oh my gosh. Ah. Go okay. into presentation mode again. Go to presentation mode? Yeah. Okay. This bar, I know before it went up. Are you trying to share the spreadsheet? Yes. Okay. And I can't get to it because uh, this bar is covering that. Stop, stop sharing. Okay. And share again and pick the window. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Sorry about that, guys. I do want to show you the spreadsheet that we put together. Might take me just a second to make sure I'm um, 
clicking the right the right things here. Okay. Okay. Now I got it. All right. So I put this uh, spreadsheet together and we're going to post this on our Facebook page. But on this first sheet here, I went through and I, as I was reading the book this time, I highlighted the different modalities, the different therapeutic techniques or anything that was beneficial, um, whether or not it was in these last, this last section. And then I have a note from the book about um, why that's beneficial and what it does to help us. And then the next sheet is a list of a few resources that I have um, either used myself or that I'm aware of that could be helpful in these different, um, for different healing uh, aspects. And so my hope is that as we post this, it's a Google sheet, so anyone will be able to add to it if you have something else to add here. Um, but all of these things listed are, a lot of them are talked about in chapters 13 through 20, this last, last section of the book, but also throughout the book. And there's, I think, 30 something things listed. Well, no, not quite 30, 23, um, which I found so fascinating because these aren't, a lot of these are not, they're, you know, quote unquote, therapeutic I've recognized as oh that's therapeutic that a, a doctor or psychiatrist would prescribe right some of them are and some are being used more um, someone mentioned EDMR EMDR sorry I said that wrong and we'll talk about that um, I guess I can go back and forth I'll tr I don't know if I can go back and forth between these two but um, I think this was really helpful for me to see how many different things are available. And again, as the author says, there's no one treatment of choice. And it's usually a combination of things that are going to help for us. Um, and these, I, this is um, sorted in alphabetical order now. So the different, this on this page. So there's things that, uh, like I was talking about with the communal rhythms, um, that, that can be the basketball team chanting, drumming, uh, choral singing, group singing, group dancing. A lot of those things have a similar effect that rhythmically attuned movements, which I find really interesting. All right, well, I'm going to go back over to the slideshow. We'll come back to this later, most likely. But um, here we go. Oh, we're too yeah, far. Stop. Yeah, and then go into presentation mode. Yep. Thanks, Bruce, for keeping me on track there. Sorry about that. All right, so um, I think what I'll do is just go through another slide or two here, and then we'll take some comments about the paths to recovery. So in chapters 15 through 16, the two specific therapies that are explored are EMDR, which is a recent 
innovation and yoga, which is an ancient practice. The author says that his responsibility as a doctor is to do what works for the patient, regardless of understanding how it works. He points out that other more traditional or conventionally scientific therapies are not necessarily any better understood. And I believe in some cases we could say that about the drugs, that we know that a lot of these medications are effective, but we can't always say why they're effective. So kind of following that idea, a general idea of the principle in which effective therapies are based Relaxing the body and making the patient feel physically comfortable has a beneficial effect on the mind. The trauma sufferer will always have the memory as the victim of a physical wound bears a scar, but they will be able to go about their daily lives with a calmness which cannot be simulated and which is a sure sign that the therapeutic process has worked. All right, let's take um, some comments. If anyone has any comments from chapters 13 through 16. Um, I'll just say about EDMR from the book, uh, focuses not, on not only on regulating the intense memories activated by trauma, but also on restoring a sense of agency, engagement, and commitment through ownership of body and mind. It loosens up something in the mind or brain that gives people rapid access to loosely associated memories and images from their past and helps the person put the traumatic experience into a larger context or perspective. All right, Rebecca. So I would like to bear my testimony of communal singing. <laughs> no, this is interesting. I know a lot of people when they're stressed or sad or something, they might put on a favorite song, they might dance around the house. And that that's a really good way to kind of, you know, on a very superficial level, kind of uh, get yourself out of it. But there's a group called Choir, Choir, Choir. You guys all need to look them up if you have not heard of them. They've been around for a long time. They put on these giant sing-along concerts all over the world, attended by hundreds of people in giant auditoriums and concert halls. And they sing together. It's like karaoke. They put words up on the screen. I came across um, one of them on YouTube. They were singing BG songs and the joy on hundreds of people's faces as they're looking at, they're singing, they're smiling at their neighbor. It's just incredible. You, you've never experienced that in a church setting. So choir, choir, choir came to Salt Lake just a few weeks ago. And a couple of us from the book club went, it was a smaller group, maybe like a hundred people but I'm not kidding. We all stood there. It was ABBA day, right? So we sang Mama Mia. We sang everything. We're moving. We're singing. You can sing as loud as you want. There's no wrong answer. They, they taught us different parts. And I'm telling you, it was wonderfully cathartic. It was completely healing. There's just something about human beings getting together, doing something. We all knew the songs, you know, we grew up with them and it was just amazing. I mean, I still feel like I'm kind of glowing and have a positive effect from the experience. So anyway, that's my testimony of communal singing and look up choir, choir, choir. It makes you feel good. Even just to see hundreds of people doing the same thing together. It's just amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Rebecca. I could feel that energy there. Okay, Roy. Hi. Um, so I just wanted to just point out, I appreciate how he talked about how there's not one way to do this and there's multiple ways to do this. 
And I'm just thinking about us as a community that in our culture, we have a lot of talk of one way or certain things you could explore were a very small amount of things within that one way. And so just having lots of self-compassion for yourself as you start to try um, some of these things and recognize that they may feel uncomfortable. The first time you try them may be feel weird. Um, and if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you, but just kind of having an open mind and, and what we call in my field of work, like discovery skills that I would say a lot of adults, not even necessarily in our culture, just as you get to be an adult, you kind of start to restrict yourself from your learning history of what you like and don't like. And so just keeping what I call like a, just a curious and open mind um, as you step into these. And also I had another, um, another tool, but I'll just add it to the Google doc. It's called focusing the power of focusing kind of a newer tool that helps you just kind of honor what's in your body and just kind of noticing, not needing to fix any of it, but just being aware of it. Yeah, Roy, thank you for mentioning that. Um, one of the, one of the, um, oh my gosh, resources that I put on the second sheet of that spreadsheet is um, Insight Timer. Insight Timer is an app. It has tons of free, tons of free content, but there is a paid portion as well. Anyway, that's one thing I've learned on there. It, I've been using it. It's stress, mindfulness, sleep. Um, they have a lot of live classes for yoga and other things. I mean, it's a wonderful resource. Um, but one thing that, that stood out to me as I'm going through this mindfulness course is just what you said, that if we have a sensation or a thought that we, are not, we don't like, we don't want to feel, and just recognize and accept, well, it's already here. I'm already feeling that, or I'm already thinking that, and just notice it non-judgmentally. I, I love that. Thank you. Bruce. Yeah, I, you know, um, I listened to the book while I was walking and, and the part when it talked about, you know, group singing, the vision that came to my head was the African-American gospel choirs. And, and I, I juxtaposed the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you know, sitting up there, uniform, stiff, you know, making great sound. And the, what I've seen of black church choirs, there's body movement, they're singing. And then I also thought, okay, the, Black experience in the U.S. is, you know, PTSD causing constantly. And it seems that the Black community through the Black churches and this culture of singing and, you know, body movement and stuff is probably a way to kind of self-heal from the world outside and uh, and you know what Rebecca was talking about I'm going like oh okay and then the the basic thought that came to me is you know sometimes we don't understand the trauma that we have but what if a family took all of these I guess modalities and just integrated them into the normal family life uh, singing together yoga another thing that I find in, in some of my health research is meals together, eating together 
at home. Um, mindfulness. I know I pay for Sam Harris's uh, podcasts and stuff, and he has a meditation and mindfulness app. And I haven't ever messed around with it, but I have the subscription. I have for several years now. But what would it be like if, if you know, you, if a family talked about mindfulness, if practiced yoga, if was encouraged to say, okay, here's the therapeutic concepts, you know, here's somebody we know that's having this trauma. This is what's going on. And a person's going like, oh, okay. So this is a place for me to look for healing. It's quite the different experience than my Mormon upbringing. And so just integrating, it's like eating healthy food that you don't know why you're eating it, but a good variety of healthy food ends up making you healthy. And all these therapeutic modalities, if you if we integrate them in just to our daily lives without specific trauma in mind, if it might just lead to a healthier experience for all of us. I really like that thought. There's a lot of great ideas uh, for healing uh, modalities or healing techniques that the author uses in the book. There's going to be others that I hope you share and put on that spreadsheet as well. Um, add different resources like Bruce mentioned, the Sam Harris podcast. I mentioned Insight Timer. Um, and different ones. Um, so thank you, Bruce. Ren. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, um, also attest to EMDR. I was fortunate to find a therapist a few years ago that helped me um, use, he was, I guess, taught to use EMDR, I think appropriately. And, and I was fortunate in that respect. And so I benefited greatly from EMDR. I will say the first time I did it, it was weird. And it was probably one of the most strange things I had ever done. Um, but I can't even begin to tell you how much it did help. So it, it's just kind of a way to reprocess and reframe some some traumatic events in my life. The other thing that I was going to just mention, and I know it's kind of, I know through the book, he talks about um, a little bit about talk therapy and just, you know, meet, you know, just people meeting with, with counselors and, and things like that. For me personally, um, my experience has been that talk therapy has been extremely helpful and it's been one of the most therapeutic things I've done, especially when I stepped away from the church because it was so isolating. I ended up losing, uh, well, I lost my marriage because of it and my 20 year marriage. And so I, it was an extremely isolating event. And so to find a therapist that was good at, um, faith transitions and to use talk therapy for that purpose in my life, um, was extremely helpful and it was, and it was helpful for a time. And I'm still, I actually still see that therapist just because, it is so recent. I've only stepped away, you know, it's only been a year and a half officially, you know, but the last couple of years since COVID. So um, I would just say, I think what's important that he points out here, and I, I think it's already been said that a combination of these modalities and a combination of these treatments, um, also finding a therapist, I, I, I have found that finding a therapist that that is aware of some of these treatments and 
can, you know, has the objectivity and, and also the, the, the educational background to understand how some of these things affect people um, is, can be a difficult journey. And I think finding, finding that is also part of the journey, or at least it has been for me. And so I've used, you know, I've had different therapists for different purposes and different things. And so I've been, I feel fortunate in that way that I've been able to find those, those resources because they are out there. And I think it's one thing that I think is a benefit of COVID. And I, and I wished I had known about this book years ago. I, I forget when it was written, but um, I wished I had read it years ago because it's been extremely helpful to understand, you know, these, the, these paths to recovery and, and what's available out there. But I will say COVID has presented some amazing opportunities where people I think are just more aware of how important our mental health really is. Um, not only from an, being an adult, uh, and it's okay to be working through things as, as an adult. And I think our society is slowly kind of coming around to that fact that I think mentally we were unhealthy for a really long time. Ren, thanks for sharing that, especially thank you for validating talk therapy. I definitely think there's a place for all the therapies that, that are in this book. I think the author in particular has found that in his experience working with PTSD uh, patients that talk therapy is not the most effective, but that is not to say it's not going to be effective for other situations, or even for someone with PTSD, I think just maybe for the first time, being able to tell your story to somebody and being heard in a safe place can be extremely therapeutic. Um, Lori. I just wanted to echo exactly what you were saying. So I've done the EMDR. I was the one that did that for health reasons primarily, but it also addressed some trauma that I've had in the past. Um, that I wouldn't necessarily call PTSD. Um, but like having groups like this that know the journey that I've been through, that understand the culture, that understand where I came from and where I'm going. Cause I'll talk to my non-LDS that have never been friends or never been um, members of Mormon. the church. At, yeah, thank you. And, and they will say, oh, I would have never done that. And I was like, you can't say that you weren't in it. Like they don't understand. And my friends that are members don't understand. And so I think having like the like-minded and be, being able to talk about that and being validated that that's my experience too. And you're not crazy <laughs> is really, really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Another therapy that the author talks about in chapter 16 is emotional freedom technique that's also called EFT or tapping. Um, there, I've used tapping a lot uh, and there's an app that I have on the spreadsheet that was really, really helpful. It's tapping a series of acupuncture points on various parts of the body and uh, as you say, generally, as you say different um, statements about what you're experiencing. Um, so that is very, I have found extremely helpful. He also talks about heart rate variability or H HRV, which is a good measure of how well the autonomic nervous system is working. And I found this uh, similar to how I was fascinated by the different parts of the brain. I'm fascinated by why heart rate variability works. 
Some of you may have Fitbits or smart, um, you know, like your Apple Watch or something that gives you a reading of your HRV and may wonder what does that really mean? The sympathetic nervous system uses chemicals like adrenaline to fuel the body and brain to take action. And the parasympathetic nervous system uses acetylcholine to help regulate basic body functions like digestion, wound healing, sleep, and dream cycle. This is all in chapter 16. Um, when we're at our best, these two systems work closely together to keep us in an optimal state of engagement with our environment and with ourselves. So HRV measures the relative balance between these two systems, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. When we inhale, we stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, which results in an increase in heart rate. And when we exhale, we stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which decreases how fast the heart beats. In healthy people, inhalations and exhalations produce steady rhythmical fluctuations in brain, or sorry, in heart rate. Good HRV is a measure of basic well-being. Um, and poor HRV, which is a lack of that fluctuation in the heart rate in response to breathing, has negative effects on thinking and feeling and also how the body responds to stress. So um, this is called coherence. Um, so lack of coherence between breathing and heart rate makes people vulnerable to a variety of physical illnesses, such as heart disease and cancer and mental health issues, um, depression, and PTSD. And he talks about how yoga can help um, uh, the heart rate variability in helping traumatized people learn how to comfortably inhabit their bodies. Um, because if you aren't aware of what your body needs, you can't take care of it. So um, I, I've also been aware of HRV for a while because I have a Fitbit and it tracks that at night particularly. Um, and it's interesting, I've also read about it because I'm like, what, is the, what does that number mean anyway? So I've, I've looked up information about it. Um, your one-time HRV rate is not your, your, what your HRV is all the time. It fluctuates throughout the day and at different times. And also as we age, it trends lower. So that's a normal um, response as well. Um, and then this, uh, so the author says that the two most important phrases in therapy um, are notice that and what happens next. And those I believe are used in EMDR um, and can also be part of yoga and other things as well. All right, I don't see any comments, so let's go on to, um, we'll do the, the last, um, I think two slides. I think our time is right, uh, hitting up against one o'clock, so we're nearly done here. <laughs> Thanks for hanging in, um, there's been some great comments. Okay, so chapter 17 and 18 focus on mental techniques that patients can employ to take charge of their own destinies. These methods are based around agency, there's that word again, and creativity. And I think agency, it's, it's so interesting because my brain just goes to what I was taught in church about agency. It's basically choosing what God wants you to choose rather than 
this true sense of agency of being in charge of your own life. People experience multiple identities can assume leadership over these separate selves and decide which ones they value and which are destructive. Um, so this is the internal family therapy, um, internal, fam internal family systems therapy that he talks about. This does not mean that they become completely um, consistent, which is impossible except for exceptionally well-balanced people, but it does mean they exercise choice over the range of emotions they exhibit. Creativity and agency naturally grow together. No one is more of a free agent than the author of a play um, who can create any characters and make them behave as the author wishes. People who seem to have been robbed of agency to the extent that they cannot even imagine what a happy childhood would have been like can recreate themselves and their situations through a, a guided rescripting of their lives. This demonstrates to them that they do have ideas and ideals where they thought there was nothing but a void. There remains a strong physical and spatial element in the therapy. There's an element of physical theater in the technique that cannot be replaced by writing or talking. And then the last two chapters, and this is the last slide. Um, in the final chapters of the book, the author juxtaposes cutting edge science with one of the most ancient therapeutic techniques. So neurofeedback is a promising area which has barely been used in the treatment of trauma and drama, trauma, drama, has been um, providing purpose, agency, therapy, and catharsis for thousands of years. The author wants to explore every possible avenue to tackle the hidden epidemic from ancient Greek drama to the latest neuroscience. Some patients may decide that they prefer a Freudian talking cure, as we've already talked about, and this will be their decision with a wide range of other options available to them. So I will stop sharing now so I can go to my spreadsheet, but if anyone has any comments, feel free to, to discuss. Karin has a comment. All right, go, go okay. ahead. I, 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 I'm gonna be very honest with you. I did not read the book. I intend to read the book. My, my daughter mentioned she had read it, but I must've missed something because what does EMDR mean? What does it stand for? Um, that is in there something it has to do with eye movement oh eye okay. movement yeah i don't so eye movement something response i think yeah i'm not i'm not familiar with that but i i have done the tapping yeah the the emdr is a more um recent therapy and more and more um therapists are being trained in it. So good question there. Um, so again, here's our spreadsheet that we'll post on Facebook. Um, please add to it because I think like Bruce was mentioning, how, why not um, on a regular basis have you know various things that, that work or, or whether or not we know how they work or why they work um, in our lives and just create a balanced, healthy response to living in a world that's challenging anyway, despite our own 
you know, very personal experiences that we've had trying to grapple with this life. Um, so again, on the first page, I just have listed a lot of the different techniques or modalities that the author references in his book. Um, I may have missed a few, but I think I got the majority of them, some of which we haven't even talked about. Um, and then the second page, this is where I hope that we can build out some more, um, more resources. So uh, a few of them I have mentioned. Um, if you're the very one at the top, and these are in no particular order, it's just as I was going through. So if you're interested in working more or on heart rate variability, I would recommend HeartMath. Uh, it's a company that sells a little sensing device that you clip on your ear and then you do five to 10 minutes um, of breathing and it will record your HRV. Um, it is pricey, that is pricey. So, I mean, there's other ways the author talks about how yoga can help with, with that. And I think meditation in general, breathing exercises in general can also help. Um, and then the app I mentioned for tapping or the EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique is listed here. It's a link I highly, highly recommend this. If you're interested in that, it does have a free, um, some free scripts. So what this app has is uh, dozens and dozens of different scripts for different conditions, anxiety, sleepness, sleep issues, um, different health issues and things you may have, you'll tap through the different uh, acupuncture, acupressure points as you go through the script. Um, so they've done a lot of that for you. Insight Timer, which I think might, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the, the one that Bruce mentioned, Sam Harris, but Insight Timer is wonderful for mindfulness, meditation, anxiety, stress, sleep issues. Um, but that that's it everyone so thank you for hanging in till the very end this this was a heavy um topic but a lot of very i think very important information that'll help us understand ourselves as well as others and hopefully be more open and curious and compassionate for others and their experiences as well as our own Thank you so much. Yay. It was great. That really was amazing, great. Nancy. Thank you so much. This was a tough book to tackle. And when you volunteered to do it several months ago, we're like, we can't think of a more perfect person than Nancy to do this. So, and this spreadsheet is wonderful. Somebody asked where we're going to post this. In the book club, we do most of our interaction on Facebook. I know some of you guys aren't on Facebook, but even create a fake account and come join us because we talk about the books. We post links. We post spreadsheets like this. We have one on secular traditions now that a lot of us are on, you know, not so much doing the religious traditions. So we kind of crowdsource. What do you do now about holidays or events or milestones? So this is going to be like that, where we can kind of all share and help each other. And this will be under the... Um, 
featured tab on our Facebook page. And I can probably email it out to some of you that just interact with us via email. But um, and maybe I'll do that every couple, you know, it wouldn't be a, a real time update like it will be on Facebook. So this is going to be excellent. So I'd also like to add uh, my little plug for Noah Rashada, Secular Buddhism. We've read both these books, one in book club, one in the Mormon Stories book club. And he has an amazing podcast called Secular Buddhism. And this is extraordinarily helpful. And I found it extremely interesting. So if anyone wants to check out any of his work, he is amazing. I also wanted to mention um, how we kind of talked about, could we um, implement some of these modalities into our parenting? And um, on the Mormonish podcast that Landon and I do, we interviewed, she's actually a member of the book club and not here today, a wonderful mom named Monique. And she said that she had created a, what she calls a magic routine in the morning that she does with her children. So the M is for meditation. They do some meditation together. And the next one is for, um, at, let's see, affirmations. They, they say some affirming statements to each other as a group. Then they share things they're grateful for. That's G for gratitude, M-A-G. Y, they put a Y in there instead of an I, is yoga. They do yoga together. And then they think of acts of kindness, that's the K, that they can do for others throughout their day. And they do this every single morning. And these kids are all 12 and under. And I'm just thinking, how amazing for you guys. <laughs> that you're starting, you know, this practice and it's really ingrained into what they do and they do it as a family. They do it together. So the magic routine, I just thought that was amazing. And all of us can come up with things like that for ourselves personally or family members to do together. Anyway, there's the possibilities are endless. So I'm really excited about the spreadsheet and, and this has just been a wonderful discussion and, and thank you for being so open and sharing and vulnerable. I think we all just learn so much for each other because from each other, because a lot of us, you know, we've gone through experiences that not everybody can understand, but collectively as a group, we get it. We don't even have to say it kind of to each other. We, we know what we've been through and we know where we're trying to go together. And that I think is the best part. So that being said, let us have Kevin tell us a little bit about our next book very quickly. This is a good one coming up next month. We'll distract him. <laughs> All right. So yeah, the, the book for next month is Enlightenment Now by uh, Stephen Pinker. He's a cognitive psychologist, so it's kind of one of those informative, deep thinker styles of books. Um, you know, and, he, and he's very optimistic. Uh, a quote from him is, there can be no question of which was the greatest era for, our, for culture. The answer has to be today, which is until it is superseded by tomorrow. <laughs> so the whole book just kind of presents a, a view that, uh, you know, we live in a great time. Um, that there's been no better time to live um, and that we've, we've been progressing and we're, we're going to continue to progress. So I, I really like his view on, on how he presents this. Um, you know, one thing I get tired of, of listening to a lot of it's, um, you know, belief. I, I hate, I hate hearing the, uh, the argument, oh, the, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and look how evil the world is and how godless our society is and everything's going to be terrible and it's just getting worse. And so he really presents, does a good job presenting um, with numbers why that is not the case. Um, it is kind of a, it's a pretty long book. I think it's about 20 hours. So if you haven't started it, um, better get started soon um, because it, it's a long one. Uh, I read it a while ago and I'm, I'm just going through it again and I'm only about halfway through. Um, you know, and there, there is kind of a lot of, of chapters there. And so I don't know how in-depth we'll be able to get, but um, if you have certain things you want to talk about, um, you know, 
be, be ready to share those because um, there's a lot. So um, anyway, that's uh, that's the book for next month and uh, it'll be it'll be fun. Long, long book though. So get ready. <laughs> so I will say when the books are this long, please read what you can. If you cannot finish, that should never deter you from coming to the discussion because, you know, it's all a catalyst for a topic. And this is a great topic because ever since I was little, I've heard that these are the most wicked, evil last days. So for the last 50 years, it's been, you know, 50 plus years, it's been the wicked, evil, last, horrible, you know, and that just, I'm not sure if that's really true. So this book is going to delve into that. So please, if you can't finish the entire 20 hours, you know, find a summary online, watch a YouTube channel. I'll even uh, post some things on Facebook, read as you can and just come to the discussion because that's where the really good stuff happens. So I think we have one more slide very quickly about how to connect with us. If you're new and you don't know how to connect, if you're not on social media, you can just send me an email to thegoodbookclub at mail.com, not Gmail. And I will put you on our mailing list and we'll send you links and information about upcoming events. Like I said, most of our activities takes place on the Good Book Club Facebook page. And that's our header there with the books. And if you find us there, we all talk amongst ourselves and we put links and stuff under the featured tab. So that's really where we, you know, have the bulk of our interaction. Um, we're also on Instagram where we can DM you links and things. And I've also made a little push into TikTok. We'll see. I'm not quite sure I understand it. So if you know any teenagers, please tell them to call me because I need help. <laughs> anyway, um, if you do email me and I email you back, check your spam. For some reason, mail.com always goes to spam and we wouldn't want you to miss out on any of our events. And then the next thing that we do, I know we're always trying to get this three hour block, right? It's ingrained in us. We must communicate for three hours, but I find that most of us just want to stay on and talk. So um, we have sort of a little mix and mingle. We turn off the recording and we just get to know each other and talk. Now, unfortunately today, um, and usually Landon is on here too to facilitate. Uh, both of us are doing a taping for Mormon media reviews um, at a bookstore. So we have to sign off, but Bruce is going to be our moderator. And you don't even need a moderator. You just hang out and talk. So the only part about this mix and mingle that doesn't work is that there are no snacks, right? We're all ingrained in the Mormon world. We should be bringing our green jello or our chips and dips. So <laughs> Go get your own, bring it back and hang out and talk. And we will see everybody next month or in between. So thank you. It was wonderful. 